0: Do you wonder if others are dealing with the same project management challenges as you? Not sure where to turn for guidance and leadership? Office Hours are in session as we discuss project management and PMOs with global leaders, hearing their story and learning their secrets to success. Our goal is to empower you and help you elevate your PMO and project management career to new heights. Welcome back to Project Management Office Hours with your host, PMO Joe. Welcome, everyone, to Project Management Office Hours. We're the number one live project management radio show in the United States, broadcasting to you from the Phoenix Business Radio X Studios in Tempe, Arizona. I'm your host, PMO Joe, and for the next hour or so, we'll be talking project management and PMOs with our special guest. Before we jump into the show, just a few announcements. Uh, I want to invite everyone to go out and register for the PMO Leader, global community annual conference. That event will be taking place on October 18th. It is free to attend thanks to our sponsors and partners. And next week we'll be making some special announcements about those sponsors and and our speakers. And an interesting concept I think I haven't seen in any of our conferences within our industry. We're going to be live for about 17 hours or so with content and we're going to follow the sun. We're going to start live in Perth, Australia and work our way across the globe, finishing up with content in America. So we'll be doing content live from Australia and Asia, Europe, Africa, uh, North and South America. And no matter where you're located, you'll be able to have live local content related to our industry. So that's going to be a fun conference for us. Lots of planning, and we're project managers, so that's what we like to do. Uh, So feel free to go out to... uh, the website, which we're showing here on the bottom of the screen, and register for that event. I think you'll enjoy that, and we're eager to get your feedback once it completes as well. Also, last night, I finished entering my PDUs to recertify myself for the next cycle of my PMI-PMP certification. So a reminder to all of you that each of these shows are available to be used uh, to capture a PDU. We go for about an hour. We have great conversations with fantastic leaders from around the world, and as you're in your recertification cycle, uh, a fun way to be able to capture and gain PDUs and knowledge uh, and experience from our guests is to be able to go back and listen to the old shows and make sure that uh, you can recertify with your PDUs. We're recording this, of course, as we always do, but we are live, right? We are live on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and internet radio, and we'd love to hear from you. So. As you're joining us, please drop in a comment to let us know where you're joining from. We're really a global show. About two-thirds of our audience comes from outside the United States, so we always enjoy getting that feedback from our listeners around the world. And with that, I'm very excited to announce our special guest today. Dr. Robert Jocelyn is joining us. Hello, Robert. Hello, Joe. Thank you for inviting me to the show. Ah, My pleasure. Speaking of global and and world uh, listeners and travels, where are you joining us from today? I'm actually joining from the Middle East, so from Saudi Arabia, in the sort of top northeast part
1: of Saudi Arabia.
0: Fantastic. And and home for you is located where?
1: In Switzerland. So I live on the Lake of Zurich, uh, which is about 40 kilometers long. So it's about 18 kilometers from Zurich. So, I live in the canton called Schwyz, uh, which actually is one of the first cantons, one of the first three that were actually formed. Uh, Switzerland was formed over 100 years ago. And you actually know the flag of our, our canton. It's actually the Swiss Red Cross. That's our cantonal flag. Fantastic. So, I actually live in the same village as Roger Federer, uh, Martina Hingis, uh, Belinda Bendich. So, it seems all the tennis
0: players like to live in the village uh, which I'm living in. Well, if you could stop by and chat with Roger and invite him to the show. It would be great to have him come on and, and we could have a chat. That would be fun. If you could take a moment, we obviously we know where you're located and where you live, but if you can do an introduction to the audience as well, just to let them know a little bit more about you and, and your history and your background, that would be fantastic. Of course, yeah. So uh, good morning, good afternoon,
1: good evening, everybody. Uh, so I'm um, uh, she's 60 years old, so I have uh, many decades of experience uh, I'm Swiss and British, so I was born in England and uh, then I grew up, spent the other 30 years in Switzerland. Uh, I'm an engineer, chartered engineer, electronics by background. Uh, I enjoy working across different industries, um, primarily in the project management, and I guess every project has a PMO part to it, so on the PMO side. And so um, I guess my first real formal experience with PMOs was back in 1992, actually, in the Swiss Stock Exchange. Working with the uh, logica people and uh, the Australian people, and uh, I've spent, say, the last uh, thirty years in Switzerland, but also working in different countries, but based out of Switzerland.
0: Fantastic, and uh, we've gotten to chat a few times before the show started here, so I know a little bit more than the audience does. So we'll have some <laughs> good conversation, I think, to to pull some stories out from your experiences and and also just knowledge you've gained within our profession over the past several decades starting with that one would be you're a founder of an association and i think impactful one within our industry ai pmo if you can share a little bit about that and how that all started
1: so ai pmo stands for the association of international project management officers so really the association should be about the individuals rather than the project management office itself So the O could be officers or office, depending on how you use the term. And uh, the reason I actually set up um, AI PMO back in 2015 was having worked on projects pretty much all my life uh, and experienced projects, good ones, poor ones, you realize actually in the projects that are poorly run, how it actually impacts individuals. So I've seen people um, get gray hair, divorces, health problems. Um, And in fact, uh, one of the organizations I worked at, a very large one, the CEO and CFO actually committed suicide because they didn't make uh, the financial targets. The pressure was so great. And so I decided um, having a lot of experience in that area to try to do something about it. Uh, And that's when I actually left my position. I did a PhD uh, at uh, Schema in um, strategy project management uh, and uh, program management. And then I started forming all the courses and all the content uh, for the first um, first set of materials uh, for AI PMO. and th- the difference um, between I guess what we do uh, AI PMO and the majority of the other associations is that rather than just write something, like for example i've I've been on the core committee of PMI on the portfolio standard, also reviewed the first draft of their program management standard, I teach. I mean, I have PGMP, PFMP, also PMP. My PhD was on methodologies. Um, So I know quite a lot about methodologies, actually writing them. Um, So the difference of what we do is that we actually create a framework, just like a skeleton, and we actually take research uh, because I'm a professor uh, as well. I have PhD students and uh, I teach at the master and doctorate level. So we take the research findings, That invariably takes three years to create Um, because you actually uh, have about 300 or so people in interviews, or you have um, a a quantitative study with similar numbers, you actually can take the findings of the best companies, put it into the framework. So what you're doing is putting all the pieces in. And then what we do is we actually test it in the teaching, and then uh, we write it into the books. Uh, the majority of organizations, uh, associations don't do that because there's a lot of work to go and do. Instead, what you do is you get people together, and then you decide what you want to write about. You actually write about it, uh, then it gets reviewed, et cetera. I guess it goes through a process then to actually get published. So there's, there's a difference approach um, between a research-driven standard uh, or set of guides versus one that is more of a lagging standard. So what exists amongst a few group of people, what they understand and then put together.
0: So interesting concept here because you're you're targeting the individual by calling it right officers, mm-hmm. and when we think individuals, often within our industry, we think not within the PMO but the practitioner, the project manager, and. And PMI gives us the PMBOK, right, for the, PM, the project management body of knowledge for their certifications. Mm-hmm. So within AI-PMO, is there a, a similar, you mentioned a framework, but is there a similar body of knowledge or any sort of book for these officers to be able to follow along with? It is, yeah. So one of the, one of the mistakes is to use a project management methodology
1: for a PMO.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so it's actually quite different. Projects are about repeatability. PMO is about adjustability or flexibility. So what they do today could be different to what they do tomorrow. So it's a very different concept. And We just published um, a book. It was three years in the writing. It's actually called PMO Services and Capabilities. It's 750 pa- uh, pages. Uh, it's actually quite an ex- um, expensive book. The reason being is because the actual print price uh, is actually all in color. So we had it all professionally laid out. Uh, it's actually like doing p- two PhDs in one and uh, actually uh, publishing this book. The first part of the book actually has the lower half of the methodology or the framework actually within it. and Then we're actually going to be publishing other books. Uh, there's two actually on the way, uh, which then complements this one, because this is like an integrator book uh, with, with, with concepts that link into the other books. So it's actually a multi-year journey. It's probably going to take us another three years or four years. But then what you get is a tested approach, not just something that you just write and throw out there, something that's actually been tested in classes, but also tested where I'm working now. The book I just showed you—it was that book that actually won the contract uh, where I'm actually working. We competed against some of the some of the biggest companies in the world, so we're actually testing and improving, and that's where the second edition comes out, third edition, etc. Yeah.
0: So. So this is all fun for me because this is all t- stuff that I live and breathe, right? I'm, hey, I'm PMO Joe. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm supposed to be talking about, right? Um, mm-hmm. And one of the challenges we see within organizations, and you made the distinction, right? The practitioner versus the, uh, the adjustments of the PMO. The majority of PMO leaders that we work with used to be project managers, and they didn't receive any training on how to become the leader of a PMO. And therefore, they run their PMOs as if it were a project. And, and oftentimes, they end up shutting down after a few years because they're, mm-hmm. it, they're different bodies, as you mentioned. What has been some of your experience with that? And, and how yeah, so, do, would you recommend for that new PM, right, who gets promoted into a PMO leader position to be able to evolve properly so that they can be successful? Well, see, it's a very interesting point you raise, and there's actually
1: research um, that shows that the, the there's back research and i compare this and we do this in the course against what makes um people or people in the at&t labs back in 1960s the most successful and then we compared it against the project manager a program portfolio and also the pmo and the, the thing with the, the project manager they have very low emotional intelligence they actually push really hard mm-hmm. and they're actually shown that um People with low emotional intelligence, but uh, they don't need necessarily on the project side because they go in and they need to do change. But when you try to put that project manager into a functional position, they invariably fail. And it's the same with the PMO side PMO people need to have a high emotional intelligence, just like the functional manager. Functional managers are not as good at getting work done, but they're very good at actually keeping their positions and actually being networked in the organization. So in fact, a number of my colleagues, um, we haven't sort of researched this yet, but probably about one in 10 project managers are actually suitable for the PMO,
0: just one in 10. Yeah, and I, I, we see that all the time, and, and we always wonder um, within other functions, is the same thing happening, right? Because that that's really smart leader, but not functional leader, right? They execute, they deliver. And when it's Mm. time for the promotion, Hey, we want to promote that person because they're great at what they do. And oftentimes you lose on two fronts. You lost the great practitioner and you created a bad leader. And because of that, the organization suffers twice, not just once. And the individual Mm. of course suffers because when they were excelling in their job, no longer are they doing that. And of course that that's a negative for everybody involved. (laughs) You can also see that with
1: Winston Churchill, for example, and Maggie Thatcher. They were great wartime leaders. They took decision action. They were very good in the wartime, came to peacetime, um, and it wasn't really very good. They um, Churchill um, got replaced. You may say, well, we didn't have a war with Maggie Thatcher, but actually really at the time she took on the Union, so it's an equivalent equivalent of that. Some people are very good in the project, in the change part, the pushing through. But then you really need to look at the sort of the handover to somebody that's somebody better that actually more of the status quo, getting on with people and taking the operational units along with them. And the, and the PMO side actually has a very delicate line to actually walk uh, between being too much of an operational culture and too much of a project culture. It's, uh, um, and in fact, because of um, there are many different types of PMOs, each one actually we believe and we don't know this yet we believe there's different culture types in the pmos Mm -hmm. and i I can talk a a little bit later because we've just got some new research out but what's the link of culture and pmo success and the different types of uh, culture uh, traits in pmos
0: one thing i like to do when when uh, someone's representing an association that comes on is kind of compare and contrast with some others in the industry that people are familiar with (laughs) because they have Mm -hmm. some context for that right so If we think about like PMO Global Alliance or House of PMO or any of the other ones, I'm not trying to single them out, but what would be a distinguishing component to AI PMO that is a differentiator for you compared to some of the other name brands, if we want to call them that, that are out there in our industry?
1: Yeah, what's interesting is actually the origins. Um, So I know Jeffrey uh, and America Pinto several years ago, and actually we did sort of form a loose partnership between AI PMO his organization. I don't remember it was called Global Alliance at that point. Um, but then we were both busy and then sort of went a different way. So America actually sort of drew his art from his product. And so he really he, he was actually looking at a product certification. For us, we don't do products. So we want to be independent of that. And then uh, with Lindsay and Eileen Roden, they came to us and actually were part of AIPMO, But then they looked at actually setting up uh, their own um, the House of PMO—it's not association, but organization. Mm-hmm. So, where they f- they focus primarily on competencies. So, really, the 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 differentiator for us is, I think, that um, that we spend probably a lot more time um, in the research and the building of our frameworks. And you have to have a framework; you can't actually build something without. Uh, the framework. And that's why, for example, uh, when you're looking at the top consulting companies, they will always build a framework, a structure to frame a problem, and then actually find a way to actually resolve it. So ours ours, um, is actually based on objective research, but there is, of course, practitioner experience, because when we put it into the training materials, we actually test it and see whether it resonates with them. Some pieces work, some pieces don't work. The other organizations will, um, I think with, with both, Merico, I know he developed this model, and then he put it, he actually called, he created this thing called the uh, Maturity Cube, um, which was based on Monique 27 functions. and Then he's created his value ring, which is a very nice you know, approach of actually doing it. Uh, but uh, when we do our courses, ours are about 15 days, for example, going from the, the foundation, which is a team member, so we have PMO and project people. The practitioner is actually five days as well. And that's actually with the project manager and the PMO manager. And then we also do an expert level. Uh, and the expert level is really difficult to do. There's only one or two of us actually do this in the world. And we don't just look at one PMO. Um, we actually look at multiple PMOs. We call them a topology of PMOs. What it really means is like a network topology. Is that if you're in, um, if you want to work as a team, a team of PMOs, you don't just have one centrally because it's too far from where the action is. So you have departmental PMOs. You may have, um, for example, I set this uh, executive PMO for the CEO of this mega project. That is very different to an initiative specific PMO, which is actually building, for example, a particular building or an asset. So you actually need a team, and the expert course looks at that and how we, we identify and how we build this design, but also we actually build it into the whole of the PPM environment as well. That's at the expert level. So there's a whole uh, depth to it and which I don't think the others, one of the others don't get into that depth.
0: Yeah. And this uh, part of that differentiation, and thank you for sharing all that, right, is kind of where we started up the PMO leader community because there's choice for people. And oftentimes it's like, how do I choose? Which one's right Mm -hmm. for me? And and for the PMO global community, we've tried to be agnostic. We don't have a, a preference for one association or methodology or framework over the other. But we want to be able to bring all of them together, so that the users have a single destination to see which one fits for them, because mm-hmm. because nothing in the world is one size fits all. And if we give them that choice, certainly they're they're able to go forward and make the one that is best for them. So I, I I like your your description, and I think it's it's you know it's a differentiator that's out there, and I think we need that within our industry, because so much of our industry is focused on project managers, right, and not on the function of the organization within it. Um, So thanks for sharing that a little bit with AI PMO and the vision that you have there. You've mentioned a couple times the mega project that you're working on and and you're in Saudi Arabia, and we don't need to necessarily get into the project specifically, but how have you seen PMOs be different around the world, right? Mm -hmm. Again, we talk about each PMO is different within each company, but Mm -hmm. do you see variety and variation across geography as well and regions? Yeah, you do a lot, uh, and it, a lot of it comes down to the people that teach um, PMO's. So
1: if you think you're being taught by a master, but you're not, and they just teach you a certain level, that you think that's it. But if you suddenly realize that um, there's actually a higher level, and then you learn that, then you realize there's actually a, a greater opportunity. And in where I teach, I mean, the Middle East, uh, but also in Europe as well in different countries, is that the people in PMO's invariably, um, have all of have a degree probably about 40 to 50 percent of a master of science and about 12 13 percent of PhDs are really highly educated. I actually call Saudi Arabia the kingdom of PMOs because it has so many structured PMOs invariably really um, run by consulting companies like McKinsey for example. PwC is big into PMOs. So really, Saudi Arabia has, um, may be surprising to some. It's extremely advanced in the way that um, PMOs, um, they've actually developed. And What we're doing in this project I'm working on, is that I'm in this standards group, um, and PMOs are actually custodians for methodology. So we talked about the pen book guide, for example. So In construction, I've only heard one person use the word agile, and that was somebody just coming in from the outside. Because all agile really means is just efficiency. We use a procedural methodology. It has all the checks and balances in it because you can't afford to make mistakes uh, because it's people lives and out here. Same with the oil and gas industry or you know the building industry anything where you're actually constructing things. So the PMOs here. Uh, you have a methodology. You have all the checks and balances. They actually play both a sort of like a design review, but also they play um, a compliance role as well. In this, if I look at PMOs, for example, in the UK, UK is mainly service orientated, uh, and they, from my, from what I've seen, is that they they don't go to the depth that they do, for example, in the construction industry. And the Middle East is full of construction, for example. So a lot comes down to the certifications you take, the people that you mix with, and also the emphasis that's actually put onto PMOs within the organisation or within the region.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. And just thinking back, the, the past two winners of the PMO Global Awards, you know, PMO of the year contest they do have both been from Dubai, right, in uh, and, and the Middle East. And it certainly speaks to the point of the Middle East just is doing it at a different level than everywhere else. And where I am here in the States, unfortunately, it, it just, it hasn't hit that same depth, right? We haven't achieved that same level of maturity and understanding as some of the other regions. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to, to do any of your research within the U.S. And, and have a thought on any of that.
1: Yeah, see, the thing is in the Middle East is that they have the money to go on courses, mm-hmm. so they see that. But However, <clears throat> there's a lot of what I call a Mickey Mouse courses, courses that call to a master class and things like this, and uh, we give webinars. and One of them was looking at um, courses, what to watch out for. Um, so really what you want is an accredited course, uh, the, the the ideal one is actually to go from a accredited credit course. You do your degree, you do an MSc, but actually you do your chartership, and that's probably the, the top one. Or there's maybe one above it. You can talk about a PhD. So that they in the in Europe, uh, Scandinavian countries and Switzerland, for example, they pay for the master of science and they pay also for the the PhD. So people, um, I think, take more into the education and a number of the courses. Like for example, the Swiss Business School, uh, we have this doctorate program on strategy project leadership and pmo management what i've seen with the us is that um because of the the employment rules and because people are concerned about positions they will spend less time on courses unless they have to go and take it and so it isn't it's it's seen more well is it just a necessity Um, and if it's not then they probably won't take the time to go and do that Mm-hmm. In Europe, it's, it's different. In the Middle East, it's definitely different. They like to invest. Um, the government pays a lot of money for education
0: uh, into different areas, including project and PMO management. And, and that investment, of course, is uh, one that would one would hope would be a long term investment to pay off many times over on the value of the projects and uh, the ex- excellent execution of those. I haven't heard as much this year, but maybe over the last year or two, there was a lot of talk about PMOs evolving into. SRO, Strategy Realization Office, or Value Management Office. In my view, is was just, how can I rebrand something so I don't have a bad connotation when I started up? Uh, what's, what do you see in the Middle East with that? Is there much of a, a pull away from the term PMO or into other terms? Well, this is an interesting one
1: because I'm actually working on terminology. I, we've spent probably two years in AI PMO. Looking at, and like, for example, tools and techniques. PMI talked about tools and techniques, but you couldn't actually work out what is a tool and what is a technique. Uh, so, when terms are used interchangeably, invariably there's a lack like, of clarity uh, for that. So, regarding actually the understanding of something, you really need to sort of go into depth um, to understand what it is and then how these actual things uh, fit together. Can you actually just re- repeat the question that's okay?
0: Yeah, the, the SRO, VRO oh, yeah.
1: movement. The naming. Yeah, I'm sorry, now I've got it. Yeah. So, so for example, PMI used to talk about three types of PMOs, mm-hmm. supportive, controlling, and directive. And the problem with associations, and including with AI PMO, is that when you write something down, people believe it. But the problem is that um, there's often, um, when you write it from a personal view, you just learn that guy's personal view. So we have never, ever managed to actually put a PMO into any one of those three categories of the supportive controlling directive. So that was actually up to version six. And then um, what happened, I think Sunny, the these old CEO, he's a European person, he changed the standard from a non-principle based to a principle-based standard. And what's interesting is that PMI would talk about a gold standard, but then they throw that out and put something totally different in. And in fact, the, the new version, uh, what they say is the standard is not the process part, but is actually the principle part, which is actually a total 180 degree change in doing it. And they describe in there a value management office. And, and I guess I'm, I'm rather sort of cynical because the reality is that the number of PMOs is really down to the, your ability to name these things in different ways. Uh, so it's not just the three. In fact, those three don't, there's a very poor, You, you never say, I'm, I'm a controlling PMO, it's authoritarian. I'm a directive PMO. You actually choose uh, the actual name of a PMO according to actually what it does, or the combination of services. And this is the sort of thing we cover in the courses as well. And something else that's interesting is that uh, we did a project for a very large um, international retail organization. We had to find the PMOs. They weren't called by a PMO. So we actually sort of created uh, like a filter saying, what do you do is actually, you're actually a type of PMO. And in fact, the department I'm in now, which is engineering standards, they actually are a type of PMO. They never called themselves a PMO. But what they do is they have a methodology They're the masters of that, the custodians. They're actually, we're looking at creating uh, variants of this according to the asset that we're building, which is absolutely makes sense because you should never have a generic methodology. It should actually be designed around the thing you're actually building. You have to find where these PMOs are, and they weren't necessarily being called that. To your point about the value management office, everything creates value. Mm -hmm. So really, um, people, I saw this in there, and it's just somebody that shouted the loudest to get this thing in there. It's just a PMO is a generic term. Um, you could actually say the finance department creates value or project creates value. And this is where that um, people have tried to segregate it. So for example, PMI would talk about deliverables for the project, benefits for a program, and then value for a portfolio. the reality is everything creates value, everything creates benefits. Uh, Okay, a project does deliverables, yes. In England they would say it creates outputs. Then they would say outcomes and that's equivalent to a benefit of the program. So, really, you just have to understand the use of english and and understand that when people try to describe something or model something, it's really a sort of a simplistic view um of their environment, and you've got to see what actually makes sense in your environment and make sure whatever does make sense, make sure those terms are used properly and consistently
0: and and i've and i I, I don't know maybe i'm a, an outlier in my thinker and haven't bought into the you know what i've what I'm supposed to believe, right and so we've, PMO Squad, we've been principle-based all along because when you're a consulting firm going out to work with clients, right, they want to have a result, right? It's, it's what did your, your delivery out produce? So I've always struggled with calling something a project management office because the word project is used throughout an organization and not meaning a project like mm-hmm. professionals mean it. So mm-hmm. what we've always talked about with them is delivery. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if you're a PMO or an engineering department or an accounting department. You're producing deliverables in a structured format. And if we help you do that in a structured way that you can do it consistently over time, Mm -hmm. to your point, we're creating value, right? We're we're removing waste and inconsistency. So I I agree with you. I think we as an industry get caught up in these terms, uh, and and you need terms to create common culture and and all that. I, I get it. But if we live in different geographies with different cultural influences, terminology can mean different things to us.
1: It does, and this is where the problem we have with agile. So um, I know this is a topic we wanted to go and discuss. So when you look at, when we looked at this um, terminology, when you actually, for example, look at stakeholder management, PMI would describe that as a tool or technique. The reality is that stakeholder management, it could be called a domain. We talk about service domain because PMOs create services. We take a service view. If you look at in England and they talk about themes and then the PMI talked about knowledge area, for example, but then they changed their mind and called it performance domains. But the thing is, there is actually no definition for performance domains. When I actually reviewed, um, when I was working in the in the committee, I looked at what what a knowledge area consists of and what they called a performance domain. In reality, it's the same thing. It's just a different name to it, and that's it. But whatever you do use, or whatever is used, is you need to make sure that it's well communicated and not something that you know and assume other people actually know.
0: Yeah. So you had mentioned agile and and. It's, uh, I did a couple of talks this earlier this year on Agile versus Waterfall, the great debate, and, and the outcome of that is there is no debate between them. It's they're, they're really rooted from the same origins, and they're both trying to solve a problem. It's just a different approach to solving the, a, a consistent problem. But now we start to see the AMO or the Agile Management Office forming because, again, people have to create a new term for something. So what's your view on Agile in the PMO space? Can a PMO be Agile? And if so, how? She gave uh, for several
1: years, I was hearing about the Agile side, thinking, what is it? And then I saw videos and saying, well, so what is it? There's nothing really in, in this Agile side. So all Agile means is efficiency. In fact, the term Agile, I think it was in 1945 when Raythorn came out with a series of principles, Agile principles, um, if you look at the Deming process, it's it's really about efficiency. That's all agile is is efficiency. And it's comprises of a series of techniques. So techniques is the lowest building block. You combine them together into a method or a series of methods and you call it something, whether you call it the sort of banana methodology or the agile methodology, it doesn't really matter. If you want to build a framework, you actually don't put redundant terms. And in fact, what I did is I took the scaled frame or the safe framework and I removed all the adjectives in front. Uh, and the, I actually showed uh, the people on the webinar what is actually simpler to understand. And you go backwards and forwards, and what you actually see is the, the one without all the adjectives. So people then ask, is the AI PMO framework an agile framework? So if you look at the frameworks, do you see the word agile on it? No, you don't. You see two words, continuous improvement, that means agile for efficiency. If I was to put agile in governance, I'd have to stick agile all over the whole framework, and I would actually pollute it. And that's why, for example, the Half Double Institute—they don't use the, the term agile, even though they may call it an agile in the sense of an efficient framework. We don't use the word agile either at all anywhere in our frameworks. So to come back to your question, is it an agile PMO? or an agile PMO is—is is it actually producing its maximum potential benefit? And there's actually um, there's, there's the whole new research that we've actually done. Um, that when you're looking at a PMO by itself, it actually only creates about a third of the impact it can actually create. and The reason being is because it actually has a domain of influence that it, it that can actually influence. Um, but there's also other PMOs that it can influence. So if this was PMO supporting that one, then that one actually also supports this one. So what you actually has three have three parts to the maximum potential benefit, what it creates itself, and then what the other uh, supports for it. And then there's also a third part to it as well. So agile PMOs, if it's efficient and it's actually creating its maximum potential benefit, yeah, you can call it agile. But you would never say agile PMOs. It's, it's just it's just an efficient uh, PMO that's that's adapting to what is actually needed and what services are needed at that time. If it's not adapting, then it's not agile. But we don't use the term because it's
0: redundant. Yeah, and and also if we go back to kind of the origins of it again, it's. Agile is about the approach to deliver the good or service. It's not about a function, right? And the PMO is really a functional entity, and it's a differentiator between project management and PMO, right? Agile is really more of a, now I guess you can split hairs and start talking about, is my organization an agile organization? Well, we certainly hope so, to your point. It better be efficient. Yeah. Um, but if you have a PMO that's trying to do some of the agile you know, mindset work, and the rest of the organization doesn't well, how can it exist how can it fit into the organizational culture and structures
1: so this is an interesting one where you have a project that actually uses sprints to actually deliver something and the pmo is is the equivalent to like a, a finance department or and like a department equivalent it should take much bigger picture So if you get a project developing software packages every two weeks, and it costs you $10,000 in two weeks to package um, a new delivery, you're going to find the whole process costs more than the whole project itself. And so you've really got to make sure that you're using the methods that actually fit into the organization and not just something that um, some people have got an idea about. Um, So the PMO takes a much bigger picture than the actual um, project itself, and to the question about um, people see PMOs is really important. This is like um, this is quite important uh, because in the past the PMOs used to be the place to get out of you know to go into the project team, but I see these things quite differently now. And the analogies, uh, if you look at Henry Ford when he created the production line, before the project was the car, and then. That didn't become any importance so much because you could build any type of car on the production line. The PMO is the production line, it's the enabler of the organization. The only way it actually works is by all the PMOs working as a team. They like the different work points on the production line. And that's why we are focusing on the PMO management part. And it's PMO management, is because when you create a standard or when you create books, you don't create it around the entity, the project. It's around project management the domain same with the pmo it's the entity you created around the domain so pmo management the domain same with program management portfolio management And i think that's probably why that um, there never was really much progress um, into developing pmos uh, until the organizations that you mentioned before have actually sort of come about and actually raised the attention and I think it's with, with them actually working and competing and presenting, that's when you get better solutions coming out, um, so, you know, for the, for the better of the industry, for the organization and for the individuals within PMO management.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, as you're speaking, I started to think here that project management, relatively speaking from a formal perspective is a fairly immature profession, right. you know, compared to accounting. If we go back and just use PMI as maybe that benchmark of formality, it's 50 or so plus years, right? So PMOs are a subset of that. It's even less time within PMOs as a formality. Now, did delivery exist before PMI was around? Of course it did. Mm -hmm. The great pyramids were built with the delivery methodology, right? To be able to repeat Mm -hmm. the stone placement over and over again. But as an industry and a profession, you mentioned it's these new organizations that are shining the light and creating awareness through awareness, we then start to get focused and we start doing research and we start to improve upon it. So we're really at the tip of the spear here with PMOs. Where where are we headed, right? What have we learned and where are we going based on what we've done so far? Well,
1: it's interesting about the term profession
0: versus a trade. So there's a gentleman
1: that actually did his PhD to understand his project management profession or a trade. And he came up with 33 traits and then actually ascertained that project management was more of a trade than a profession. So what we did, and we presented this at a um, conference in London, the uh, the PMO conference, and I think we did a second one as well. We actually looked at the PMO side and said, what are the elements or things that need to be in place so that PMO management can be a profession? And we believe that with with uh, like this AI PMO or with an equivalent association, we've probably got more of a chance to make PMO management a profession than project management. So that may seem a bit strange, but if you just think that, as you mentioned, PMO being a function or an entity in the organization, it's equivalent, for example, to finance, or it's equivalent to the legal side. It does a particular thing. It's an organizational entity. A project isn't. And therefore, just by seeing that there are accountants that have a profession, the the, um, finance guys have got professions, the legal guys in a profession, we, we have actually more of a chance in PMO management being professionals, you know, a profession than project management has, which may sound surprising to
0: the audience um, on the show. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. And I, so I, what's, and again, I don't, I don't think anybody has the answer because we're probably paving the future as we're, we're living these days. But how do we do that, right? How do we take that next step? Because the, the reason I bring that up is the challenge we have is through the past 20 years of poor performance organizationally, we now have a reputation that precedes us when we go into a PMO, and we have to fight over this, this mindset of PMOs are overhead, PMOs are wasted, PMOs don't provide value. So how do, we, how do we break free from that perception to be able to then become, as you mentioned, a more of a profession within the industry?
1: Well, this is part of my motivation for setting up AI PMO, is that if you have an association, you have the ability to influence in a position of power, but you must be very careful how you use that. And that's why we don't go out and um, use adjectives that uh, promise things that we can't actually deliver on. So we are actually developing the content and, and we are testing it as for example, I'm in, in, in the middle of the desert, I would prefer to be home in Switzerland, for example. So I'm actually practicing what we're preaching is testing it and actually improving it. Once you have the content, And it's written down like for example in this book it's 750 pages it has probably it's the most uh, comprehensive book i believe in the world with all the concepts in it and the people that have actually read it surprisingly to me they actually have been reading it from cover to cover because there's so much in it and i think it's it's really um people's understanding and pushing themselves and learning a philosophy and hopefully a philosophy that choose the right philosophy for that particular organization because everything is contingent, this is contingency theory. So don't just copy paste, uh, but actually take these concepts and apply it with the framework. Then I think that we have a good chance of actually increasing the number of successful PMOs. But PMOs always have to show value. It's not just you've achieved a, a limit and then or a level and then you sit. And that you've always got to keep sort of pushing and adapting and showing value, and I think that's also a problem uh, with a number of PMOs is getting comfortable in the organisation. And that's why I say the these, this thin line between more of a project go-getting culture and more of an operational culture. It's going to be very careful where you are in the culture of the PMO.
0: You've you've spoken a lot today so far about research, and we had Louise Worsley out of South Africa on who had presented a, this I don't know, four or five shows ago about some research within project management. And you know some of it, when you hear that, it's like, geez, I, I always thought that was the case. But then when there's data to support it, it's nice to have that confirmation. Mm-hmm. How has how research really driven what you've done and helping to grow what you're doing? Because it's hard to argue with data, right? It's hard to argue with the research that when you come up with that.
1: It is, yeah. So I took my PhD at 50, and it's quite late but I actually found I had more questions than answers. And the people that I was working with, and they were smart people, we got very clever people in Switzerland. They come from other countries, they bring their families, but they didn't have the time or unable to answer. And that's why I actually took my doctorate to actually understand more. Research isn't about a magic ball coming up with things that are incredible. It's more about confirming something, providing the data, as you say, Joe. And I think that's, that's important. One of the weaknesses of research and this is a, this is part of the reason why the Swiss Business School got the accreditation, it's the AAQ accreditation is that business schools struggle in actually showing universities they can do original research because it's more applied. But what I actually did when I presented to the deans of a number of universities is I actually said that the way we actually do it is a very structured approach. We build a framework, which could take a month to build, and every line on that framework is a PhD, where we get students to take each one of these pieces, they individually they work, but it all fits into it, and then you prove the framework. They accepted that, and, and I think that's how the, the research had the tick box to get the accreditation. So. The secret really is the framework and the frameworks you actually build, uh, and then making sure you do focused research that you're able then to then take the results. Just like I mentioned, for example, we have a fr- we have actually two frameworks, um, and then we've got sub frameworks from it. We have research that shows what's the link between culture, PMO culture, and success. And so now we've added an extra piece on there because we've got the findings for that. So bit by bit, we're actually adding these things. And so when we talk about it to our students, um, you asked me about what a differentiator is, is that we're actually able to talk about the research. We have PhD students coming and joining the courses. They come for 30 minutes, or we also have a professional, uh, one of the top people in the, in the area. Uh, they come in and talk about what they go and do. So our courses are not typical co- cookie cutter. In fact, the five-day courses at the... F- practitioner and expert, we take a real problem of a PMO and we use the methodology to go and solve it. And we actually do role plays where people on the course they, the people who actually work for companies to solve it, they're the client and they are the other ones that don't have a problem or are consultants or don't want to act as a client, they act as the consultants. So we actually look through the whole process and then we uh, we actually solve it. and That's why you see so many pictures f- from our courses, not necessarily the virtual ones, but the physical ones, we all show the pictures of the work, and the whole walls are just plastered with all the work that we actually do. So it's very intensive and for the instructor, these guys that all always have an MSC, most of them have got PhDs or studying them. And they're also top consultants. And if you work with top consultants and you're in a course for 40 hours, you learn a hell of a lot. So that's probably one of the biggest differentiators for most of the other courses where, where the teachers are not necessarily confident and always want to come out with the same answer. But there's a big difference between a cookie cutter one and one that actually solves real problems for the people on the courses.
0: So as you were talking about that, this. Made me think. I think the show was way back in my first season. Dr. Harold Kersner was on, and I had asked him at one point, "Why don't more universities offer project management degree programs?" And he had an interesting response to me. He said, "Well, who's going to teach them? Because we don't have enough good project managers who want to stop practicing to go teach. So we're we're going to teach our future project managers with poor project managers, and, and therefore universities haven't." bought into that and we are seeing a little bit more of this but it's taking time so the question back to you on that was as you were describing that the masters and the phd candidates is how do we take the theoretical of an academic situation and verify it with the practical of an organizational or corporate setting to know that those two worlds can come together and produce successful outcomes right mm-hmm. it's one of the challenges i always get when i talk about theoretical things is that's a great theory joe but in practice, that's not how it works out here in the real world. So how, is, how has that balance been met by what you guys are doing? Well,
1: it depends on the topics you're actually looking at. So you mentioned, Joe, that 50% of PMOs fail within two years. Well, this is an interesting one because I was giving a talk uh, in London and Rolf, Professor Rolf Muller was going to do the same. We, we looked, we were going to use that. And then we looked into it we realized the person actually cited it, it was from uh, a paper that would Professor Monica Albury wrote. When I read the paper, there was nothing about the, the PMOs, that they looked at 15 PMOs, so 18 PMOs uh, across um, Sweden and Canada. So in fact, the, per- the person who interpreted it, it was actually a very large American insights organization. They published 50% of PMOs failed within two years. This paper, they cited, none of them failed, in fact, they all evolved that was your word you used, evolved. It was the same as well in the research. And then PMI picked up on this and said 50% of PMOs fail. And then everybody else picked up on it. The thing is, you've got to be very careful about where this information comes from. So we actually changed our presentation and we gave these short ones about fake news. What is truth? What is false? And in today's world, as you know, you hear a lot about it. So when we're looking at the information that's quoted on 50% of PMOs fail, we actually don't know if it's 50% because that was only on 18 PMOs and you can't look at 18 PMOs as distribution for the whole world. Mm-hmm. So this is what really what research does is it actually confirms um, or it provides interesting insights. So my, my PhD, I looked at what's the relationship between methodologies and project success. And how does governance influence that relationship, the strength of the relationship? What I found was that a comprehensive methodology, not agile, you know, if you just, agile is more about principles, but a comprehensive methodology can influence success But up to 23%, the variation be accounted for the, the methodology. And in fact, NASA was one of the people that I, or organizations that um, I interviewed in my qualitative study. What they do is that they have a comprehensive methodology The project manager goes to them and says, look, I don't need this element, this element, this element. If they agree, you can take it out. So therefore, they make sure the method is actually, uh, is is suits uh, to a certain degree, the thing they're actually building. So how does um, research actually um, show that? Well, in all the conversations uh, that we have, if people sort of say, okay, this, and I can actually then explain from the research, actually that is the case or that's not the case. Then the other one is how does governance influence this relationship? What we see actually that, that we couldn't determine if you if you have different types of governance and there's four paradigms Professor Rothmuller uses. But what we could tell is that governance influences success by up to 7% on depending on how your project is actually governed. So these are sort of interesting facts, just like the one I mentioned about the emotional intelligence, that only one in 10 project managers are suitable for the PMO because their emotional intelligence is too low. So we can give you facts and therefore we can actually help you put things together that you may feel is right, but you don't either have the vocabulary or you don't have the official connections. And therefore
0: you can talk with more confidence
1: about you know, this, this situation because you can actually refer to it
0: and you know, refer to research. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, go back to the, you know, PMOs fail. I, I don't even know what that means. Like when, how would we know if a PMO failed? Like they changed the leader? well, accounting departments change leaders all the time. CFO came on board, a new president to the organization. Does that mean the company failed or they changed their methodology? They brought in a different tool. I mean, so for me, that's why I like evolved because organizational functions are never static, right? Failure to me is just a learning opportunity to do something better, right? It goes back to purpose, measure, optimize. Measure it, we're not doing something well, let's optimize and let's do it better. So that's always an interesting one when we go back and look at what does failure mean with the PMO? Well, this, this is the point, I think, that this organization is
1: a big U.S. organization. People pay tens of thousands of dollars to get their research. Is that in Monica Aubrey's paper, she said that every two years, there's a change. But she, what she actually meant, and I spoke to her about it because it really bugged me, is the organizational change. It's not just the PMO change. And mm-hmm. the people that read it thought the PMO changed and therefore they must fail. So to exactly to your point, organization was changed and in fact there's about I think 17 drivers that could influence whether PMO is terminated or not or changed. These are called PMO Drivers of Change. We have it in our course. It's from one from one of her research papers. So for example, that you have internal drivers and external drivers, external drivers are like market economy, for example, political change, environmental factors. Internal is when you have like a new CEO, a new PMO manager, a change of strategy. So you would expect that. And that's what she actually wrote about. But she wasn't 100% clear whether it was just the PMO that was impacted every two years. And in fact, it was the organization and the PMO.
0: Well, and this is why we have conversations like this so that we can go out there and we can talk about these things because ultimately we're all trying to do the same thing. We're just taking different roads to get there and that's to improve project performance around the world, either by making PMOs better or by making project managers better or the PMO leaders better or the projects and organizations, all of us, if we can keep shining that spotlight if we can keep bringing choice to people in our industry i think we are going to make improvement um and, and so that's why i think we can have these discussions so that we can understand that better let, let, let me add to this um there's a very good
1: framework from david snowden called the connivement framework and i apologize if i pr- pronounced it wrong Is he's actually welsh it's actually a decision-making framework and you actually have five quadrants. Well, you've got the one in the middle where you're not sure where you start. You've got the simple, you've got the complex, well, sorry, the complicated, the complex, then you've got chaos. And in the simple quadrant, this is where um, on a project or project portfolio, very few projects are that simple. This is where you have a procedural methodology. But when you actually go to complex, Sorry, complicated is the next one, complicated. There's many ways to solve something. Just as you said that um, there's, there's different ways we, could, we go different approaches, and you never force somebody to do uh, this just one way. So Therefore, a consultant will say, look, I'm going to do it this way, You am going to do it that way, they're probably going to be fine. So With a simple quadrant, you talk about best practice, but that's really just a very small part of what we do in project management. Very few things fit into it. The next one up is good practice. So it's good practice, but there's many ways of doing it. Then you become into the next quadrant, which is actually complex, like complex adaptive systems. This is where you have a thing called emerging practice, because everything is related. and, and If you actually do something, what you may find is that because it's related, you actually a negative spiral, you've got to stop it uh, or it may be a positive spiral, then you reinforce it. The last quadrant is chaos. So for example, when we had COVID, you We didn't know what to do in the country, so England did um, lockdown, Sweden was totally open, Switzerland didn't do any lockdown at all. Everybody different did it different because we didn't have the data. We just didn't know what to go and do. So the chaos quadrant is when you're in a crisis, or when you're doing research, you want to go and solve something. So with this one, you actually have a novel practice. So good practice for simple stuff and this was the problem with with PMI's penbook guide is that they talked about the 47 49 processes and what is the next thing you do the thing is it just depends it's con- just contingent on the environment and that's why they don't do process anymore AIPMo PMO doesn't do process process is, is actually uh, organizational dependent then you say you have the next one which is good practice we have consultants and all, all different pMO approaches that's fine and then you have emerging practice and then you've got novel practice. There's a really good framework. So we actually show the video in the course and we explain as well, don't talk about good practice uh, or best practice, sorry, don't talk about best practice because there's no absolute. In fact, uh, uh, Professor Aaron Shenha was one of the first researchers. We spent about three hours covering five slides. and We were actually using the term next practice. It's relevant
0: to where you are, the next practice uh, rather than uh, the other terms I went and used. Well, Robert, I think we, it feels as if we've just scratched the surface on what could be a multi-hour long conversation, but unfortunately our time is up today. And and just back to your last point on that, we, back in the PMO leader community, we started our own podcast and we call it great practices because to your point, who's to say what's a best practice? Best Absolutely. means it's over. Best means there isn't a better one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we say is what, we bring on folks who share their great practices, things that have worked for them over the years that they want to share with the industry because for them it's been a great outcome. Um, so I'm with you. I'm aligned on that. And I want to thank you, obviously, for being on the show today. Uh, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you? Or is, do you have any books or anything coming up that we should kind of be on the, the, on the horizon we should be looking out for?
1: Yeah, so we're going to um, update this book, uh, a reprint, The PMO Principles um so we're just putting new graphics and uh, all the terminology uh, we're going to have this and then there's going to be a second edition of this which is going to include uh, service principles and uh, domain principles and a number of other things and actually how you how you select principles and there's a reason why they're behind in doing it there's another book that's actually in the second draft it should be out before the pmo principles and that's corporate governance portfolio project and Program Principles. So those are the f- two books for this year or for early next year. Um, there's some others after that, but these, those are the immediate ones. To contact me, um, it's best uh, to, you can um, contact me on LinkedIn, for example, um, if you've got questions or if you want advice or if you're interested in training courses or actually how we go about building teams of PMOs, PMO topologies, for example, feel free to contact me
0: on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for, for being on today, and also, of course, thank you to our listeners. If we don't have listeners, we really don't have a show, so we certainly appreciate them joining us. Uh, be sure to go out and visit the PMO Squad website, select Office Hours up in the top menu to be able to capture all of our past shows. This is show number 109, I believe, so there's been 108 other fantastic conversations before this Congratulations! One. Thank you and then see our upcoming schedule. We have uh, some great guests coming up, including Milan Dordovich uh, will be joining us on our next show, Mate Severa, We're gonna be having a discussion on citizen developer with PMI and one of their partners, Trackvia. We're gonna be talking with the PMO Global Alliance Healthcare Strategic Group, uh, where they're focusing on healthcare and project management and Sanjeev Augustine, as well as some others that we have planned for the year. So lots of great conversations coming up, and we look forward to having you join us for all of those. We are live, of course, as we mentioned, but a reminder that these shows are recorded and we do release them as a podcast. So anywhere you can find your favorite podcast, please go out, subscribe, become a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, whatever your podcast platform of choices. Of course, thank you to our sponsors, the PMO Squad, one of the premier project management and PMO consulting firms in the United States, and the PMO leader, global community, bringing our industry together, agnostic in thought, but sharing and open-minded in exchange. And certainly welcome you all to go out and register for that second annual conference that's coming up in October. That's it for now. Office hours are closed. Until next time, I'm PMO Joe, and you've been listening to Project Management Office Hours. Thanks for listening to another episode of Project Management Office Hours with PMO Joe. You're not alone in your project management journey. We're here to help you achieve your goals. Subscribe to Project Management Office Hours on your favorite podcast platform to catch all of our episodes and hear industry leaders share their story and secrets to success.